0: Hello, I'm David Freeman. This is the Author Archive podcast. In today's programme, can science solve everyday problems, the things that plague us, or is it down to the charge on a neutrino? And photographic records of the life of President Kennedy. But we start with another 60s phenomenon, the Beatles. There is a mammoth work being produced at this moment by Mark Lewison. The first volume of his history of the Beatles has been out since 2013. And I read it and I loved it. It's called Tune In. And when I met him, I asked him, what's his relationship to the Beatles?
1: Um, I just call myself a Beatles historian.
0: Right, Okay. Mm. And this first volume, it's going to be a trilogy.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, This is the first of three books that will come out over about the next 15 years, something like that. So that's your life plan? (laughs) It sounds like it. Uh, This one took 10 years, so we are looking at a project that's about 25 years full-time. How are you feeling? Fine so far. (laughs) I've got most of it ahead of me still, but, yeah, I'm up for this.
0: Mm. Now, this book is 900 pages. Now, uh, if someone wants to buy me a present, I want the double version. Tell me about the double version
1: okay well the one you're looking at the 900 page book that is actually an abridged version of (laughs) of the entire thing that i wrote which is um has just come out it's called the extended special edition this i should say this the the series is called the beatles all these years volume one is called tune in and there are two editions of it and the extended special edition is 1728 pages Very, very big book, considering especially that it ends with the Beatles just on the cusp of their enormous breakthrough. So this is very much the unknown years, but very, very interesting. And um, it's yeah, it's a huge piece of work and it's everything I wrote. So this is a book that I abridged from the other version.
0: Where do you drive, derive your energy from? Because writing a book, and I've tried, many of us have tried, we keep going to about page twenty-three, mm. you know, and then something happens, and you think you just sort of run out of steam. Mm. Your steam seems infinite. How do you do it? I have infinite
1: steam. I yeah. like that. Um, it comes from passion. Really. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm, it is what I do. I am a writer. So if I stop at page 23, no one's going to pay my bill next month. So I have to keep going. But I want to keep going. And the reality is I would write this at this length if I was a very, very rich man and didn't need to do it for the money. I would just do it because I have a passion for it. And passion can drive you a very, very long way. Okay.
0: And three cheers for passion. Yeah. Now, what's your passion for? For music or is it? just for these
1: four guys what is it now I have lots of passions in life but this one has been there well all my life I don't remember a time when I wasn't liking the Beatles Uh, they exploded into the UK consciousness in 1963 I was five years old I heard them they made a direct impact on me as they did so many other people and I just thought oh, that sounds good, that sounds great. It was so happy, it was so engaging, it was so lively and vibrant and interesting. And though I was only a child and I couldn't have necessarily articulated it, they made me feel good. And that never really went away. So my passion is for finding out as much as possible about who these people were and how it all happened. Um, And I do it in context. So I'm looking as a historian at the whole period of time in the British and American way of life and other cultures as well. And I'm looking at the whole popular music scene. I look at it from a business perspective, the you know, the music industry and the the broadcasting industry and so on. And I just want to look at it every which way, from the outside in and the inside out. I want to see their impact on people from a sociological point of view. And I just want to pump life back into this extraordinary story of the world's greatest ever band, who happened to have the world's greatest ever story. I mean, the Beatles story is such a rich story, full of such interesting people doing interesting things. And I just want to know as much as possible. And that's the passion. It's just, what more can I find out? In this
0: volume, you get us through to 1962. Mm -hmm. What fascinates me about this is post-war Liverpool, and just post-war, will you find as much historical perspective that engages you when you get into the 60s and 70s?
1: There won't be that richness of material, although having said that, because the Beatles leave Liverpool, just because the Beatles leave Liverpool and live in London, my story will also stay in Liverpool because I need to look at the impact of the Beatles on that city after they left it, so I will keep going back there. But... No. I mean, the Liverpool post-war is a particularly interesting place to write about because it, it suffered appallingly at the hands of the bombers in the war. And also there was always great poverty there and great hardship. And so with the bombing as well, things were really, really tough. Um, as they were in other parts of Britain as well. But Liverpool undoubtedly is a tough place for them to have grown up. And they became tough people as a result of growing up in a tough place.
0: So what was it then that made it so creative? Because it comes out in your book. Whenever you report the speech, you can almost hear the accent yeah. and you can hear the sharp humour, which yes. uh, I love. So what was it that made it such a rich place?
1: Well, it's a very vibrant city, um, they like to think of themselves up there as distinct from the rest of Britain. They, they they like to think they've got their backside to the country and they're looking out to America. I think a lot of that is a bit too poetic for my liking. But the reality is it has a very strong Irish core there. This book actually begins in the middle of the 19th century with the potato famine, because it was the potato famine that propelled the Lennons into Liverpool. The Lennon family John Lennon had a grandfather whose name was John Lennon, and he was born in 1855. And they had just arrived from Ireland uh, destitute and, and poverty stricken and, and, and full of sickness um, from the famine. So the famine put a lot of Irish into Liverpool and it's become a very musical place ever since. If you grow up in Liverpool, you have to have a turn at a party. You've got to sing a song or read a poem or do some performance, some rendition of something. So everyone there is a performer Uh, and the consequence of um, the rock and roll music coming over from America, hitting the right generation of boys at the right time when they were about 14, 15 years old and the abolition of national service in Britain, which meant they didn't have to go and do their army stint created this opportunity for them to just join bands, form bands and join bands. And it wasn't happening anywhere else in Britain. It wasn't even happening anywhere else in America. It was only happening in Liverpool. And the Beatles came out of that scene.
0: Was there a day when, maybe the day when Paul McCartney met John Lennon, was there a day when the Beatles became a possibility?
1: Certainly the meeting of Lennon and McCartney was a major moment it's it's the turning point in this story because you've got these two boys both of whom have a lot of talent both writing songs there were very few boys writing songs in those days anywhere and they're in the same part of south liverpool the south end of liverpool and they find one another and they decide to write together that's obviously a special moment otherwise it's when was that that was july 1957 july the sixth <laughs> it was at um the church a church fête in the suburb of liverpool called walton with a you know quaint old church on the hill and john was a member of the youth club and paul lived nearby as well and it was just a church fate like we've all been to in our lives so many times
0: and they found kindred spirits in each other
1: um and they used to just not bother to go to school? Well, John, Lennon's, John Lennon had been a troubled infant, uh, a very gifted but troubled infant, and he, he was always the leader of a gang. But generally speaking, though, he, he had a, a load of acolytes, the parents of his friends would always say, keep away from that John Lennon because <laughs> he's trouble. Uh, and sure enough, when Paul McCartney met John Lennon and Jim McCartney met John Lennon, Jim, Paul's father, said to him, keep away from that boy's son, he'll get you into trouble. So the only way that Paul and John could get together in the daytime was was in the daytimes when Jim was out at work. He had a job in the Cotton Exchange in Liverpool. So Paul would actually skive off school for an afternoon and John would bunk out of the art art school, which was a little bit more liberal because he was a little bit older. And they would go back to Paul's house and they would sit in the front room of this Council House in Liverpool, now a National Trust property, quite rightly, uh, and they would sit and write their first songs together. And Paul McCartney was like 15. And from that early period comes the first record that the Beatles released, Love Me Do. Who brings George Harrison in? Because he's younger, isn't he? George is a fair bit younger. He's uh, nine months younger, or eight, nine months younger than Paul McCartney. And the, the, the sequence is John brings in Paul, Paul brings in George, and George eventually brings in Ringo in 1962. So that name order, John, Paul, George and Ringo, is actually essential to the understanding of the psychological constitution of the Beatles.
0: But there's so much in your book before Ringo arrives. as yeah. the whole... <laughs> Pete Best, um, what's, what sort of man is he now? Is he bitter?
1: Well, Pete Best was the drummer before Ringo. He was the guy they got rid of just on the edge of their breakthrough. And he had to sit and watch them achieve heights that hadn't even been invented before. I mean, the Beatles just broke all the rules and they created a level of celebrity that had never existed. And the poor guy had to sit and watch it. He did attempt suicide. At one point, it um, might be 1965-ish or thereabouts, but he does seem to have come to terms with it for a very long time now. I first saw him in the early 1980s, and he was pretty placid about it, and still is. He's had a different kind of life through not being a Beatle. I mean, he can still just go out and go down the pub or down the shops or whatever, whereas for Paul McCartney, he can't just go down the shops. But his mum
0: was quite important in growing the fan base of the early Beatles, wasn't she?
1: The Beatles had um, varying levels of parental support. So they had quite a lot of parental opposition. John's mother, John's aunt, who raised him, was dead set against him doing this for a living. Um, Ringo the same. Paul and George, Paul got away with it because his dad had been a musician, but George's parents, you know, they were supportive. But how is this going to earn you any money? That was always the thing. How are you going to do this for a living? They always had the intention of doing it, though. They were going to see it through as much as they possibly could. Yeah, and sure. Mona Best, Pete Best's mother, was a very supportive mother. She did everything for her son Pete. And because the Beatles were in, had Pete as the drummer, they were, in her eyes, my son's group, which probably didn't endear her so much to Lennon, <laughs> McCartney and Harrison. Um, but all the same, uh, she was very encouraging. There was also a guy called Stuart Sutcliffe, who was a brilliant artist, a friend of John's from art school, who joined the Beatles and played bass guitar, and who then left at the age of 21 and a few months later died of a brain hemorrhage in hamburg germany
0: sad story beautifully told in the book but i'm just going to go back to the bests because they had this friend aspinall yes yes now um explain how he fits in in
1: in all areas because um it's an extraordinary tale well, when I first got to know Neil Aspinall is someone whose name I knew right from the 60s when I began reading about the Beatles and finding out all all that I could about them. Um, and I eventually got to know him very well because until only about five years ago, he was running their company, Apple Corps. I always have to say Apple, the Beatles, Apple Corps these days, because they used to be the only Apple and now there's Apple computers. So, but... He essentially managed the Beatles after their breakup for 30-odd years in terms of their collective operations and so on. But he began as the Beatles' road manager, if you like. He was their mate who drove the van and lugged the gear in and made sure it was set up properly. And before that, and all through that period, in fact, he was Pete Best's friend and a particularly close friend of Pete's mother.
0: And he had a child with her?
1: They did have a child, yes, Pete's half-brother, Rogue.
0: And that's unusual as well, rogue. Mm. Yes. Um, I mean, but then when... This book has some very unusual characters in it. Yes. When uh, the Beatles divest, divest themselves of their association with their erstwhile drummer, the assumption was in the Best Family that Mr Aspinall would also leave
1: yes yes that's right that was the assumption um the beatles hoped he wouldn't because they liked him a lot um and they they didn't want to have to break in a new assistant if you like he understood them and they understood him and everybody got on fine so they were expecting him to leave out of sheer loyalty to the bests because once they got rid of pete well neil's going to go as well they hoped he would stay and he stayed he stayed and so that meant that right through the 1960s all the way through all the Beatles' glory years, they've got Pete Best's best mate with them the whole time, which is interesting. (laughs) What was wrong with Pete as a drummer? Um, It's not so much what was wrong, it's more that John Paul and George never felt he was good enough for them they always sensed that, well, they always knew that, that he was not the drummer that they wanted. The chemistry wasn't right. Personality-wise, he didn't fit in. But also, as a drummer, he was, he was good in a certain style. Um, but the Beatles, of course, I mean, what do we know about the Beatles through the 60s? So their music was so versatile. They did so many different styles of music. You buy any Beatle album and you'll hear all different kinds of songs on it. Well, Pete was good for four-in-the-bar rock and roll, Through the night in a club in Hamburg and some places in Liverpool. But as soon as they wanted something a little bit more tricky, they found him wanting. So they were never going to keep him for very long. They ended up keeping him for two years, essentially because they were cowards. They didn't want to face sacking him. They had to get, they waited till they had someone to do it for them, which was their manager, Brian Epstein.
0: Brian appears in the course of this book. It's impossible in a necessarily short radio interview to bring in the complexity but by the end of this book they've spent time in hamburg was hamburg important you know one's heard the stories of make show and having to go on for hours was it important for them in their musical journey to have done
1: that yes it was absolutely crucial for their development they 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 got this engagement in hamburg through a series of extraordinary coincidences and and moments of good fortune uh, and they, they litter this book. You, you kind of end up feeling that this story was all meant to be because so many remarkably unlikely things do happen time after time. They end up in Hamburg, Germany. They, they haven't played much on stage to this point. They've been together for about three years, but they've not done a lot on stage in front of an audience. And as, a, as an electric band, they really don't have a lot of experience, but they get up on that stage at the Indra nightclub on the Große Freiheit, which is in Zankpauli, the the wicked part of Hamburg, if you like, where all this the uh, the seamen would go, you know, with with pay stuffed in their back pockets, intent on getting drunk, and they were a bar band, and they had to play about seven or eight hours a night, six nights a week, and. transformed them almost overnight into this lethal band on stage they were so hot they were so sharp and they immediately decided for example this is what makes the beatles always so different from their peers they decided that they would try and do these very long sessions on stage without repeating themselves so that anyone who happened to be in the bar all night long wouldn't hear the same song twice and that led to a very dramatic broadening and deepening of their repertoire so they had a phenomenal archive of songs that they could call on at any time and they would always know how to play them and they had tremendous energy from from playing such thing coming back home to liverpool and doing an hour and a half on stage was an absolute piece of cake for them because they were used to doing six seven hours And again, the interesting thing is that though a number of other Liverpool rock groups went over to Hamburg, none of them were transformed in the same way that the Beatles were. They would tend to come back pretty much how they were when they left. The Beatles always came back radically different from before they left. The book finishes on what date? It ends on the 31st of December 1962. And what's the state of play then? The state of play is that their first record, they've got a manager, Brian Epstein. They've now got a record producer, George Martin, who they got in the most unlikely of circumstances. They, their first record, Love Me Do, is out and it's been doing well on the charts for more than almost three months by the time this book is finished. It's still on the charts. It's selling well. People are taking notice of them. They are unlike anything that's ever been before. We are so used to 50-odd years now of rock and roll groups, guys on stage, guitars, drums, singing their own songs. It hadn't really been done before the Beatles. So they are new and people are going, oh, what's that? And their next record, Please Please Me, is recorded. It's in the can. It's got a release date of January the 11th, 63. So it's just about to come out. It's going to be their first number one. And the book ends right there with it with them, not only with Please Please Me coming out, but their last night ever in Hamburg. Their final night in Hamburg happened to be New Year's Eve, 62.3. It's the end of, cha- literally the end of part one of this story.
0: Mark Lewison talking to me about his mammoth and so readable history of the Beatles. Part one is already available. Now, Thomasina Lowe, her dad... Jacques Lowe is the author of a book called My Kennedy Years, a memoir. I spoke to her in 2013. So Jacques Lowe, who is he?
2: Jacques Lowe was the personal photographer to President Kennedy. He was invited to document the campaign and he's left me in charge of looking after his archive. So I have a very personal connection to this particular book.
0: How important were these photographs to your dad?
2: Uh, they were priceless, in a sense, uh, to him. He travelled with them. He he bought seats on planes so that he could have them near him. So
0: hang on a minute. He, he had a separate seat.
2: So he would actually in, he would invest the money in getting a separate seat so that you could have these um, negatives. There were forty thousand negatives. Uh, which I'm, I'm
0: just going to underline that, 40,000.
2: 40,000 negatives, yes. So during the course of the campaign trail, my father was with J- John F. Kennedy and his family uh, pretty much every day um, until he became president. And and out of that time shared, they he amassed a collection of 40,000 negatives, which he was able to keep safe during his lifetime. Um, and then, when,
0: when did your father die?
2: My dad passed away in May 2001.
0: And what happened then to these priceless negatives then
2: then well they were uh, they were stored in a in a vault in a in a bank Chase Manhattan Bank very near where my father lived. my father lived in Tribeca and really for convenience reasons he had them stored in this safe so that he could walk down there pick up what he needed, walk back to his studio um, so they were there when he passed away and kept there until 9 uh, 11. And I've, now we know what happened on 9-11. Unfortunately, they were destroyed.
0: So was that the end? And, and he entrusted you with their care?
2: My dad had entrusted me with the care of his, his archive, so his entire photographic archive. And so, in, so these negatives were in my care, and as far as I was concerned, they were safe in this safe. Um, no one could have predicted what happened on September the 11th. I was in New York on that awful day. And and I write in this particular mm. book about my moral dilemma: Did I run down to try to save these negatives because I knew what they meant to my dad, um, or do I look after myself? And
0: how far away were you?
2: Oh, within five minutes. I mean, it, it was a very short walk. I was I was close enough to be able to feel the building uh, shake when the towers fell down and have dust come through into the loft. I mean, it was it was life-threatening. So
0: you could either save yourself or save the archive. What did you do?
2: Well, very reluctantly, I saved myself. But then I made it um, a, my life's work, in a sense, to try to f- find out what had happened to the negatives, mainly because there were buildings very near the, the, the World Trade Centers which were intact, which had books in them, um, I understand that negatives are, you know, incredibly fragile, but so is paper and uh, many books. There was a huge bookstore nearby that had, had, that stood as it had done before the attack. And so I just needed confirmation for myself that actually they had really been destroyed. So I, I campaigned uh, to try to have them recovered and it, and actually it took several months, but the safe was recovered and was in a strangely intact condition. But, but presumably no,
0: no, there'd been a conflagration around it, so presumably it had got very hot. So presumably, very, very hot. Yes. so w- yes. w- were you there when the safe was open?
2: I wasn't there when the safe was opened, but I was they, I was invited to come along and and actually inspect the safe in a particular storage place where they were storing all the things that they had found, and um, and I did I was able to see the safe with the door open. Um, a perfect little circle where the lock had been. So lots of questions asked, but really at the end of the day, the negatives were, were gone.
0: But how come then there is this lavish, and actually I found quite heart-rending book, Yes, um, yes. My Kennedy Years, with your dad's photographs. So was this another archive?
2: Well, there are there are many photographs in this particular book which which have not been published before. Vintage images. Uh, what 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 we were able to actually use were just the photographs that happened to be in my father's loft. It's hard to kind of understand this, but the negatives were stored in a safe. We had we had prints in my dad's loft, so we were able to to gather all of them. But also a lot of the writing. Most of the writing is is is, is my dad's own writing, which he had never he never published a book with his own writing. He'd always got someone to ghostwrite his book. So so there is something particularly personal about this book. Um, letters, diaries, writings, they're all his own words. It's his own account.
0: OK, so the, the horror story of the negatives in The Twin Towers, they were a write-off.
2: Yes, I had to put those to rest.
0: Probably was difficult.
2: Very, very difficult. Very, very hard. Um, at the teeniest little blessing was, in a sense, which may sound odd, was that my dad never knew that this had happened. Um, I think it would have destroyed him. It would have absolutely destroyed him.
0: He was actually in New York on that fateful November day yes. in sixty-three. Yes, he was. So he'd actually left the Kennedy clan, sort of thing.
2: Well, he he had been he had been invited to to stay on and photograph the presidency, but I think having had such an incredibly privileged experience, where he had such intimate access, unrestricted to the Kennedys, I think he found the whole idea of. Being restricted uh, in the White House, not very uh, exhilarating in terms of certainly creativity. I think he he'd had he'd had such unprecedented access that to have to stand behind a a, a ribbon cutting ceremony would have just been sort of quite frustrating for him, I think. So I, he went back to New York
0: um because here he is. I mean he tells the story in this book. He was born in Germany.
2: My father was born in Germany uh my dad was Jewish, born to a a Russian Jewish mother and a German father, and he was forced into hiding during the during the war, and thankfully survived and then made his way back to America, where he had two uncles who were able to sponsor him in a sense, to come to the United States.
0: Didn't go to university?
2: he was He was actually forced out of school when he was nine. he was he was sort of he was hiding in the countryside and was able to go to school for a while. But then once the Gestapo started looking at school records, he was forced out and further into hiding out of school. So his education ended when he was nine. Um, (laughs) It's it's, it's an incredible
0: story. It's it's an incredible story. And then he gets to be the personal sort of photographic confidant of the most powerful man on earth. Was he very charming?
2: My father? Or President Hmm. Kennedy? (laughs) No,
0: we'll talk about Kennedy in a minute. Your father...
2: (laughs) Yes, he was. He was very, very charming. He was very, uh, he was a very dynamic person. Uh, he had there was a lot of depth to my father, to do with you know his his experiences growing up. He was he was very learned, very uh, self-taught. I mean, he he was very proud of the fact that he had taught himself how to speak English by buying various newspapers and then gradually. Graduating by reading the Herald Tribune and the New York Times, and that's when he knew that he could um, communicate, you know, correctly with English. But he um, he was a complex character, you know, having uh, endured some of the things that he endured. There was a uh, there was an, an an element to his relationship with President Kennedy, which I think he was able to be a part of a huge family. When whereas his early childhood had been quite a small single child experience. Any.
0: You see, I, I found it really quite remarkable that this man, his English was his second language, yes. heard become a confidant so I mean they talk about him being there when they get up in the morning and he's still there when they go to bed at night yes yes I can't imagine having a journalist a photojournalist having that sort of access
2: yes yes well I think he was I think he was a friend, primarily. I think you know the 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 relationships came out of friendship. My my dad was introduced to Bobby Kennedy three times in the same week. This was in 1956. He, as 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 a job he was asked three times to meet him. By the end of that first week, Bobby Kennedy said, clearly they they'd struck up a rapport. But my dad was invited to go back to meet his wife and to spend you know the evening with them. So and they were friends for a year, well a year and a half actually before he was introduced to Jack Kennedy. So so I think he had become a friend, a, a you know, a trusted friend. And then when he was asked by Joe Kennedy to come along and photograph his this other son... This, this is the father. This is the father. father, yes. Yeah. Um, I think by then uh, uh, the trust had been established and it was clear that, you know, my dad would never have betrayed the trust. And in fact, he, he didn't right up till the day he died. I mean, he people often ask me about conspiracy theories and Marilyn Monroe. And my dad never really... Indulged me or anyone else, for that matter. He, if he knew anything, he kept it to himself.
0: I mean, you look at these pictures, beautifully taken, and you have to remember, fifty odd years ago, fifty-five years ago, it's pre-digital. Yeah. So he was he's lumbering stuff about.
2: Yes, and in fact, it's an interesting point. My dad had polio as a child, and really struggled to walk and to carry. I mean, he was able to walk, but it was a struggle, and yet he carried his cameras around. And just got on with it, loved it.
0: <laughs> and sometimes, when when Ken- the Kennedys are in a car, he writes about chasing at the side of them.
2: He he used to chase after them. He used to jump over things when when he went with President Kennedy to Paris, and that was a, that was a very frustrating trip for for him because there was so much red tape. And by then he was president; it was harder for him to say, you know, just come along. He didn't quite have the power to do that. And so he talks about you know. H- hiding and jumping and trying to get access and, and just being very determined about it.
0: It did help for a photographer that the Kennedys were so bloody good-looking, weren't they?
2: Yes, I think they were... Uh, the way he put it was, you know, they were such an easy family to photograph because there was so much to photograph, certainly with Bobby Kennedy and his... Eleven children. Um, yes, that's right. They were. <laughs> They're know, prolific the, lot. They were a prolific lot. Absolutely, and there was just always something to, to to capture. You know, whether it was a football game or whether it was a picnic or or lying by the pool or you know, it was it was the hardest the hardest aspect of the job for my father was that when he was finally invited to come along and take these photographs, they were very unclear and very vague about what they wanted him to do and I think from an artist's perspective he found that quite frustrating because he wasn't quite sure he'd deliver on the job Um, but they said to him essentially you're the you're the artist we've seen your photographs get on and do what you do best.
0: How did he feel after that fateful day after that shooting?
2: Well it was it was a life-changing moment for him he had if you can imagine he had made his way to America which for him was the land of you know, freedom and promise, and I think none of us can really appreciate what that must have felt like for him to have been persecuted and then to come to this country where he was free to do as he pleased and felt safe and was embraced by the Kennedy family. Um, so to lose that, you know, within five years, both both the brothers, Martin Luther King, he uh, he actually made his way back to Europe, which is where he met my mother, and Thanks I was you. And, and yes, I was born in 1968, which uh, tells you a bit about you know the timings of it all. But he 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 returned to Europe. He couldn't. A lot of Democrats left the United States. They couldn't quite handle what was happening.
0: So when he told you about these years, what's what's the emotional undertow of what he told you?
2: He spoke. He spoke uh, from a place of. I mean, it may sound corny but actually from a place of love I mean it was such a positive experience for him in terms of being part of something where you felt you could make a difference my dad was very very politically minded and uh, during these five years he felt that he had in sort of society's terms he'd really been able to to contribute you know through the images you feel closer to the candidates you feel like you're sat there with them at 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 the poolside or at the kitchen table and so People were drawn in, in a sense, and were brought alive to want to turn up and vote. Such a big issue at the moment, you know, actually bothering to vote. So I think he had played a really, really important part. And he and he also talked about them in terms of being friends, you know, loving them, c- caring for them, being inspired by them.
0: The book is called My Kennedy Years. It's a memoir by Jacques Lowe, the father of Thomasina Lowe. And now, a science book, well, kind of science book. It's improbably called What a Wonderful World, written by Marcus Chown. I know Marcus from science programmes on the World Service.
3: Yeah, I'm the cosmology consultant of New Scientist, which sounds very impressive, but they actually had a physics consultant at the time, so they had to invent a title. But basically, I write about things which are of no use to man or beast. You know, can time run backwards? Are there parallel universes? That kind of stuff. Because it turns out that the the direction of time is connected to the fact that the universe is currently expanding. And if it ever ran out of steam and started contracting down to a big crunch, time would actually run backwards. Now, with this book, Marcus has written
0: a book. I'll just, I'll just leave that on the table for you to think about for a moment. If the universe was contracting, then you'd get younger. You'd be younger tomorrow when you wake up. He's written a book called What
3: a Wonderful World.
0: Now, you have applied your laser logic to everything.
3: Exactly. I mean, what I, what I do is I try and explain... Complicated physics to anyone, you know, someone sitting on a number 25 bus. And my editor at my publisher, Faber, said to me, Why don't you use that skill to explain everything to anyone? And I, I put him off for about two years. I was completely daunted. I thought, Well, how can you write about everything? How can you write about how the world works? But then in the meantime, I did a, an app for the iPad called Solar System for iPad only had eight weeks to write about 100 stories. And there was no, all you could do is jump in and and just, you know, try and swim. So after two years, I thought, well, I'll just jump in. I'll start writing about things that I know nothing about. I'll, I'll, I'll write about money. I'll phone someone up, an expert, and I'll pick their brains. And that's how I got started. Yeah, one of the most depressing bits of the book is you did talk to
0: financial people about how capitalism works. And there seems to be blind faith Oh, it's so complicated. Nobody knows. That
3: was worrying. It's terrifying. It really is because um, there, there are models of how the you know the the, the market works, the international market works, uh, and they do not predict the fundamental property of the market, which is crashes, depressions, slumps. Every year since Adam Smith and and the Wealth of Nations, which I think was about 1790, there has been one of those, and yet the economic models do not predict the most prominent feature of our economy. And you
0: look, I mean, I've I've been mystified. Maybe I'm the only one. Um, When they talk about financial derivatives, and you say that the printout of a financial derivative is thousands of pages long.
3: I mean, this is another one thing I discovered. I mean, uh, the, the financial instruments that sank the world economy in 2008 were called collateralized debt obligations. They're basically all these thousands and thousands of these dodgy American mortgages, you know, where they were money was lent, people couldn't pay it back. Uh, and, and these were called CDOs. But then they were bundled into bundles, bundles of bundles. They were called CDO squares. And I could ask you the question, how many pages of documentation would you need to read to understand one of these financial instruments?
0: Well, I know from your book, um, I've got quite good recall, but I I mean, the the word billions is coming to mind. It's one (laughs) billion.
3: And this tells you why it was that these financial instruments were bought by banks and investors, and they didn't realize that they were toxic. And it also shows you that the people that designed them knew this. They designed them to be opaque so that people wouldn't realise what they were buying.
0: Now, this book, I say, it's called What a Wonderful World, One Man's Attempt to Explain the Big Stuff. I came out of this thinking what strange times we live in and have for our lifetime, because I'm really interested in who our forebears were, the Neanderthals and before that. And I expect to get a new ipad every six months our forebears lived for generation after generation after generation using the same old axe the same old stone axe they didn't seem to have what we have this desire for the new
3: that's absolutely absolutely right there was no change as you you say in the design of stone axes for for 1.4 million years this is (laughs) this paleoanthropologists call it the 1.4 million years of boredom I mean, it could be that people made wooden tools which have decayed. It could be they had bone tools which we can't distinguish from, you know, um, natural broken bone fragments. Um, But yeah, we we live in an age where we expect the iPhone to be different next year. But what we don't realise is what an unusual period of time we live in. And this period of time began at the end of the last ice age about 13,000 years ago, really with the beginnings of farming and food production. Because once you can do that, you can get human beings to live in large groups. And that means that ideas can be exchanged and they can survive. For most of human history, people lived in groups of maybe 50. So maybe fire was invented many, many times and forgotten. Uh, it's actually the, the important thing that's happened over the last 13,000 years is interaction. And again, we see it really uh, taking off now with the internet, allowing even more people to interact.
0: But you know, if, if you think of the whole of um, creation has been 24 hours, uh, I mean, we're a, a millisecond into that, aren't we? So mm. everything's changed.
3: Yes. Yeah, but what we don't, you know, I just it never struck struck me before that that things did not change for so many many generations. I mean, imagine that. I mean, imagine uh, sixty thousand generations, and no one no one actually thinks there's an improvement on a hand axe. Of course, I ought to tell you, at the same time, many things were happening which left no record, no fossil record. I mean, we were developing language, uh, social interactions were increasing, b- brains were getting bigger, but these didn't leave much of a fossil record.
0: But what occurs to me as well, you know, we can do all this stuff, uh, our top of our brains can do all this stuff, but the emotion seems firmly entrenched about half a million years ago.
3: Yes can you tell me exactly what, what your point is
0: <laughs> the point is that we've evolved one set of skills yes. but our emotional skills don't seem to have caught up
3: well this is the big problem isn't it I mean we we are you know we are stone Age people with nuclear weapons I mean this is this is the problem we, you know we have stone age emotions but if we do wipe ourselves out it would be very very sad really I think because we've we've got we've, we've achieved so much
0: yeah but what is it okay let's let's be dismal at this time uh what is going to be our downfall? Is it going to be there's too many of us? Is it going to be the technology? Is it because we're mucking up the um, th- the weather to such an extent
3: that we will burn ourselves out? What what's what do you think? It's very difficult to know because you know these are all parallel threats, aren't they? Uh, the biggest problem, of course, is is the head in the sand uh, attitude, particularly at the moment when we're still in the aftermath of this. Uh, crash of 2008. I mean, really, the economic downturn has now lasted longer than the Great Depression. Uh, and that has made, made politicians not worry about the, the big threats to us, like global warming and all these kind of things. So that, that I think, maybe apathy head in the sand uh, attitude is the real problem. So at the end of this book, were you an optimist or a pessimist? I was, an, I was an optimist because the more more I find, found out about the world, the more amazing I realised the world was. I didn't know anything about the brain. I didn't know anything about cell biology. I didn't know anything about you know, geology. But I learnt lots and lots of amazing things. And, and the reason the book is called What a Wonderful World is because I began to appreciate that this is a world that we live in that we couldn't possibly have invented. It's so incredible. What is the, the What are the things that have made you go... Oh, that
0: is incredible. I mean, I, I okay. was reading your bit about mm. uh, the
3: evolution of the brain. Yeah. And you think, that's amazing. Did you think, oh, that's I absolutely amazing. think it's amazing. Most creatures on Earth don't have a brain. I mean, it isn't necessary. A brain is incredibly energy hungry. I mean, I, t- I mentioned the... 20%. 20%. The, the, Absolutely, the, yeah. I mean, the human brain is, uh, uses 20% of our energy, it's 3% of our mass. Uh, obviously, it, 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 there's a survival advantage in it, but for most organisms, there isn't. And I mentioned the, uh, the sea squirt, you know, the juvenile sea squirt. It swims through the ocean, trying to find a rock to make its home and to cling to. When it finds such a rock, it doesn't need its brain anymore, so it eats it. And this really shows you that brains are amazingly energy hungry. I mean, but ours has grown for, for a variety of reasons. One, because we, we've started eating meat. Meat is a much uh, uh, more concentrated energy source. Uh, but another reason is that we've learned to cook. So the invention of fire was very important. When you cook something, you break it down into its component molecules. Um, uh, so, so really, uh, a frying pan is an external stomach just as uh, uh, writing is an external memory, the same kind of thing. So when you do that, you, don't, you have to do less... Uh, in the stomach has to do less work, so there's more energy available to, for a brain, to, to feed a brain. You
0: have got the journalist's gift for saying preposterous things. Have I? Yes. Well, that's what sells books, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. If you say... Um, I think I'm right that the reason we are not Neanderthals, the reason why we overtook the Neanderthals, homo sapiens overtook the Neanderthals, is because as a species,
3: not as a person, not as an individual, but as a species, we learnt to sow. Isn't that incredible? I mean, again, I, I, to write this book, which is about the world ticks, I identified experts and I phoned them up and I asked them basic questions. One of the people I talked to was Chris Stringer. He's a professor at the Natural History Museum. And in conversation with him on the phone, he told me, he thought that it was a serious suggestion that the crucial advantage that Neanderthals, uh, humans had over Neanderthals was, as you just said, sewing. It was the ability to sew baby clothes, during the the, the bitterly cold uh, ice age winters that gave human babies maybe a few percent survival advantage over neanderthals isn't that incredible yeah and it could be true couldn't it it could be true it could be true it's it's as i mean it's as um, likely as anything else i mean the other thing is that that it's not such a clear-cut story because 2.5 percent of your dna is neanderthal so at some point humans and neanderthals did interbreed so they didn't actually become completely extinct It's fascinating, isn't it? And
0: you say that the last Neanderthal colony was somewhere in the southern part of the Iberian Peninsula.
3: and it was, I don't know, I can't remember how long ago. It was 40,000, 50,000 years ago, something like that. How sad. I mean, it almost brings tears to your eyes to think that there was an entire species of human. I mean, what what we forget is that there's one species of human alive at the moment but from the fossil record it could be that there were maybe anyone there could have been 10 species of humans alive or hominids or hominins as they call them any particular time and they've all gone Uh, I mean there's actually one species the Denisovans were known from a single uh, tip of a finger bone which was found in Siberia only a couple of years ago and it turns out from looking at the DNA from this finger bone that vast swathes of people in uh, Eastern Asia, are related to this species. Well, no one even knew that, it, that they existed before about two years ago. How many other species, hominid species, have we not discovered? I mean, I remember, sorry, I remember, I remember years ago, uh, was it Richard um, uh, Leakey did a TV series? And uh, I was very impressed uh, because at one point he took out a matchbox from his pocket and he opened it and he said, these are all the bones, all the all the fossil bones we have for, for humans from 8 million to 4 million years ago, four million years ago, all in a matchbox. I think things have improved a bit, but we're still trying to assemble a picture from very little evidence. Are you content? Are you sure
0: that the information you give us in your new book is up to the minute, the latest?
3: I am. But, you know, the the history of science shows that many things that we consider to be uh, factual now will in 10, 20 years' time turn out to be you know reconsidered and and not correct i mean that's the way science works
0: but our our ancestors as far as you know were from africa and they and everybody you see i i I am amazed that you see inuit and you think Mm. their ancestors came from the same place as me from africa and they and how did they get right up there
3: well again you know it's, it's, it's something that you desperately desperately want to know but from the fossil record we, we don't really know you know I mean presumably but that possibly they they followed the coastlines because that would have been the easiest route wouldn't it really you know mountains or anything like that maybe that's why human beings like swimming you know people <laughs> have suggested that the reason that we are the the uh, naked ape is because of, that we spent some of our time in water I'm not sure that people take that Seriously now. But again, you know, uh, you know, we, we we have recorded history, uh, which is pretty much, I don't know, not even ten thousand years. And then there's this vast swath of, of 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 hundreds, thousands of times as long, which is a complete blank. Uh, and you'd desperately like to know what happened, I would. So just to finish
0: with, I mean the book finishes saying that we could all be in a hologram. <laughs> Um, I mean, I have to have a lie down before I think about that. But what surprised you? What do you now know that you didn't know two years ago?
3: Well, Many, many things. I mean, I didn't realise that I was 95% alien. You know, 95% of the the cells in my body and in your body are not yours. They are microorganisms. They are fungi. You know, they don't belong to you. So when you're born, you're 100% human. When you die you're 95% alien because those those uh, foreign cells are not with you when you're born. They come in your mother's milk, they come from the environment. Some of them are, are completely essential, you know, like the gut bacteria that, that help uh, decompose your food. I mean, if you take antibiotics, you kill them off and you end up with a stomach upset. So, uh, and in fact, it could be even worse than that because if you look at the DNA, 99.75% of the DNA in your body does not belong to you. It belongs to the microorganisms that hitchhike, you know, hitching a ride on your body. I'm going to leave it there. This is an
0: extraordinary book. It's um, a great achievement, Marcus. Oh, thank you. And I was talking to Marcus Chown in 2013. I'm David Freeman. This is the Author Archive. I'll be back with more soon.